This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. It's such a mystery, such an impossible task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Saroja Coelho. Yesterday, for the second time since he left office, Donald Trump faced a judge and pled not guilty, this time in a Miami courtroom to 37 federal criminal charges. The former president stands accused of improperly stashing classified documents, showing them off, and then lying to authorities about them. It's remarkable not only because it's the first time a former president has been accused of federal crimes, but because Trump wants to run again. He's leading the race to become the Republican nominee in November 2024's presidential election. Alex Panetta is CBC's Washington correspondent and, of course, sometimes host of Front Burner. <laughs> Alex, what a day. It's It's been something, let me tell you. <laughs> Let's just, like, catch our breath for a moment. Could you describe the scene when Donald Trump, former president of the United States, showed up for his arraignment today in Miami? Yeah, it was a relatively quick arrival. Uh, came in in a motorcade. And outside in the street, there were dozens, scores of Trump supporters, a few Trump uh, nemeses, critics of the former president, uh, but mostly supporters out there screaming, chanting. Uh, they didn't really get a look at him as he uh, entered. But on his way out, he did wave at the crowd from his motorcade. Yeah, there he is waving. He's waving. There he is. Thumbs up, Caitlin. There was actually a bit of a disturbance. At one point, uh, someone uh, who dislikes the, the president uh, was dressed in a jail uniform and wandered apparently too close to the motorcade. The Secret Service pulled him away. The Secret Service now pulling someone, the Secret Service, after someone ran. And obviously now the Secret Service. There was a bit of a, a disturbance there. But uh, that was, yeah, that was the extent of it. It was not a crowd bath out there. It happened relatively quickly. But local authorities in Miami had prepared for thousands of protesters. Make no mistake about it. We're taking this uh, this event extremely serious. We know that there is a potential of things uh, taking a turn for the worst, but that's not the Miami way. Anywhere between 5,000 and as many as 50,000. But that's not exactly what happened, is it? Not quite, but I guess, you know, once bitten, twice shy. I was here in Washington on January 6th, uh, 2021, and people were not uh, uh, prepared for the intrusion into the Capitol. So I guess, uh, you know, given uh, the extremely inflammatory language from Trump, from his supporters, and his history of whipping up a mob, uh, it probably wasn't a, a, a bad idea to prepare for a larger crowd than it turned out to be. Now, after his court appearance, he then made a bit of a pit stop. Yeah, that, that's something I've, I've got some insight into. So he stopped at Café Versailles. Are you ready? Food for everyone. Food for Okay, this is the, the cultural epicenter of uh, Cuban Miami. It's not quite in the middle of, of Little Havana, but it's, it's an important place. Um, 
it's where Cuban expats uh, gather for coffee, and they have been for decades uh, for desserts. And um, they also make pretty good sandwiches. I've been there a few times, and I've I've got to tell you, some of the wildest interviews I've ever conducted in the United States have been in that place. Um, just about everyone there has a story to tell about how they or their one of their relatives, their parents, escaped uh, the socialists in Cuba. And there tends to be a lot of conflation <laughs> in that place between the socialists in Cuba and, you know, progressive politicians or left of center politicians in the United States. You know, I've heard people, you know, comparing just about every Democrat in America to Fidel Castro. And so you could imagine the politics at play when a president who argues he's being persecuted by socialists uh, and seeking to politicize the case and, and, and goes to Cafe Versailles and people started praying for him. They sang happy birthday. It's about to be his birthday. Some and the 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 scene there was was quite something. And just you know, you can't separate that from the politics of it. You know, uh, the the judge uh, in charge of the case potentially, uh, Eileen Cannon, is the daughter of a Cuban expat. Miami uh, people have feel have very strong feelings about some of the themes that that Trump's been uh, uh, tapping into uh, as he defends himself and tries to delegitimize the case. So the fact that he chose that spot to me was very striking. Meanwhile, there were no cameras in, or recording devices in the courtroom, but reporters have been describing a pretty standard scene inside. So Trump wearing his red tie, twiddling his thumbs from time to time, except, of course, this is Donald Trump facing charges. So maybe that is, is a real blow your mind moment. But some Republicans and prominent right wing commentators have been calling for violence. We're talking now at 5 p.m. Eastern. Are you seeing any signs of that? Well, no, it seemed I mean, at one point it, it, it sounded like uh, Trump supporters and Trump uh, anti-Trump protesters were actually talking in front of the courthouse and having relatively civil conversations. I mean, this was not January 6th, at least so far. Uh, but you, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's been extremely inflammatory language from some people. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to three uh, people with some public profile in particular. Carrie Lake, uh, the Republican candidate for governor of Arizona, she lost, talking about how we're at war, people. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card carrying members of the NRA. You had one member of Congress talking about uh, this being a declaration of war. Another member of Congress using military, like uh, martial language, talking about defending bridges and basically using the language of militias. You know, given the history of this country, the recent history of this country, uh, I, you know, you can't preclude the possibility of violence in a case like this. But fortunately, there's been no violence so far. Later in the evening, Trump gave a public address from New Jersey. This day will go down in infamy, and Joe Biden will forever be remembered as not only the most corrupt president in the history of our country, but perhaps even more importantly, the president who, together with a band of his closest thugs, misfits, and Marxists, tried to destroy American democracy. Broadly, can you tell me how Trump has been framing the case against him? That he's being persecuted. A boxer's hoax just like the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, and all of the others. It's just been going on for seven years because now we're leading in the polls again by a lot against Biden and against the Republicans by a lot. 
And we went up to a level that they figured the way they're going to stop us is by using what's called warfare. And that's what it is. This is warfare for the law. And we can't let it. And he's looking to rally all Republicans around him. You know, he could be running for uh, reelection as a guy who lost and who wants to lower taxes, but that's not very exciting. Instead, he's running as the enemy of the quote unquote deep state. This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the... As the avatar of the common man and woman. You know, he, he, he talks about being your voice, your rep- retribution. I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not let this- he says when the, when the federal government attacks me, they're not coming after me. Because in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. Here I am. I'm standing in their way. And I always will be. It's an amazing way of of establishing rapport with the Republican electorate. Uh, He's turning his reelection fight into one of principle, uh, as opposed to some, you know, former loser who's running to cut your taxes. There are, meanwhile, 37 charges here. So why don't we break that down a little bit? What is Trump charged with? Uh, He's charged with mishandling classified documents, uh, a number of extremely serious classified documents. Uh, He's accused not only of taking them illegally uh, to his residence uh, and storing them improperly, he's then accused of showing them to people. In addition to that, he's accused of lying or requiring his aides to lie to federal authorities when the government came asking for Mm. these documents back. So what you've got then is willful retention of classified documents, uh, mishandling documents, and uh, obstruction of justice and concealment. All of which, by the way, are extremely serious charges. Some of them carry potential penalties of 20 years in prison. You could be looking at a massive prison sentence because these kind of pile on top of each other. He's 76 years old. There is a chance he dies in prison if he if he loses any of these fights on any of these counts. But he's not on his own here. Who else is charged? Yeah, his uh, personal aide, valet, uh, Walt Nauta. Uh, Nauta is accused of helping him conceal uh, these documents and, uh, and uh, lying to the federal government. Uh, he's an extremely important and interesting person in this case. I think the federal government would love to have now to testify against Trump. Now, according to Trump's entourage, the federal government has done improper things to try to get now to to testify. We weren't advised of anyone else being indicted. Um, I have a theory that maybe some of the uh, outrageous misconduct has affected the equation in some other case uh, as a potential target. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Trump's uh, team asks for um, the case to be dismissed and they're going to allege prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, they allege that the federal government essentially threatened, that prosecutors threatened, and now does lawyer, and told him you're not going to be given a judgeship if you don't get your client to flip against Trump. What's your theory? Well, over the last 24 hours, it's become public that uh, members of the Department of Justice, led by Jay Bratt, extorted a very well-respected, very intelligent lawyer from Washington, D.C., saying, essentially, if you want this judgeship that's on Joe Biden's desk, you have to flip your guy to cooperate against the president of the United States. That should be have, a headline. Do you have evidence of that? I know that no, this hasn't been proven in court, but this is what uh, I'd expect based on their public comments. 
to, uh, to try. Uh, I think it's very telling that Nauda appeared with Trump in court. They, they, they uh, made their first appearance together and then left the courthouse and went to this Cuban coffee shop together. Nauda was right by his side, not acting like someone who's flipped against his boss. What do we know about the documents themselves? Why are they so sensitive? Nuclear secrets, attack plans, defensive plans, apparently showed a member of a super PAC uh, at, at, at Mar-a-Lago a document, and we don't know what country uh, is being described here, but apparently showed this person a document revealing that a certain military operation was not going very well. He showed, uh, allegedly, the authors of a book, uh, a document um, revealing plans for a United States strike against Iran. Now, he did this because he was trying to prove a point. He was angry <laughs> at the, the chairman of the Joint uh, Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. And Milley had, uh, had, had basically intimated that Trump was um, kind of a loose cannon uh, at the end of his time in office. And, you know, he didn't want him to do something crazy like attack Iran. Well, allegedly, Trump did like like wave this document in front of a couple of authors working on a book and saying, I'm not the crazy one. Look, this is the guy who had the plan to attack Iran. And very, very crucially, according to federal authorities who say that this has been recorded, this conversation with the authors, told these authors, yeah, yeah, this thing is is, is a secret document. I could have classified it when I was president. I didn't. But here you go. And And then... A Trump aide is alleged to have said, and this is in a transcript in the indictment, oh, we're in trouble now or something to that effect. So that's extremely uh, damning, right? I mean, here he is admitting that he's got extremely serious and uh, classified material and he's just kind of waving it around. The indictment also shows a lot of how the documents were stored in Trump's resort in Mar-a-Lago. So there's this photograph of the bathroom and you see the marble surfaces and the ornate chandelier and the low toilet and, and all that dark brown, you know, sort of a very 80s hotel, high class kind of scene. And then a couple dozen boxes, these document boxes. Uh, all piled on top of each other. They don't even appear to be particularly well sealed. And there's also the picture from the ballroom. Can you, can you tell me about that one? Everyone talks about the the, the bathroom and the ballroom because it's so freaking gaudy. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, the part that I focused on as a Canadian correspondent in Washington was this storage closet uh, where there had been some boxes piled in there and and they some of them opened up and there like some some documents, newspaper clippings, mixed with classified documents had spilled out onto the ground. And one of those documents, according to federal authorities, was um, a Five Eyes document of some sort. No idea what it was. Now, Five Eyes, uh, needless to say, is the intelligence uh, alliance mm -hmm. that Canada belongs to. So there's a Canadian uh, angle in, in, in that heap of, uh, of trash mixed in with <laughs> the top secrets of the U.S. government. <laughs> Hey, it's Jeff Blair. And I'm Kevin Barker. Join us for in-depth coverage on everything surrounding the Toronto Blue Jays and the biggest stories across Major League Baseball with the best guests in the game and, of course, first-class analysis. Ha! That's the smartest thing you've ever said, Jeff. See what I have to put up with? It's Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
What's really becoming clear here is that this isn't just a storage issue. So, of course, those pictures of boxes, they're very easy to circulate online, get really interested in and, and wonder about how safe anything is there. But actually, there's a, a, a bigger thing about the cavalier attitude or alleged cavalier attitude towards security and keeping national security top of mind and keeping secrets secret. Uh, and, and we see some of that also in the amount of traffic there was in and out of Mar-a-Lago while those documents were there. Yeah, no, it's important to remember, this is not just a house. It's not his personal residence. It's a country club, and he charges people access. I mean, uh, according to the indictment, tens of thousands of people visited Mar-a-Lago during the months where those documents were there. You know, we know that this place was considered a, a very coveted target um, by foreign nationals, right? We, uh, two, uh, two Chinese nationals were arrested for trespassing last year at the resort. Um, you know, one former FBI agent described Mar-a-Lago as incredibly uh, vulnerable uh, and called it the worst counterintelligence nightmare the country's faced since the Cold War. Meanwhile, we have this big conversation happening around the word plucking, the plucking gesture. The indictment alleges that Trump made a plucking gesture and that his lawyer took it as direction to pluck out anything that might be incriminating from a dossier. Why is that an important piece of evidence? It's extraordinarily important because it speaks not only to uh, obstruction of justice, it also, that sort of behavior gave the federal government the pretext it needed to go to court and then convince a court to allow it access to Trump's lawyer's notes. And those notes could become one of the most important bits of evidence the government raises in, in, in a trial, proving that Trump intentionally sought to direct his aides, his staff, his, his lawyers, his, uh, his personal aides, to obstruct justice, to lie to the federal government, uh, to conceal uh, classified records. And that plucking gesture could take on a very, uh, very important meaning. So it's a very telling and significant bit of nonverbal communication. But there are Trump supporters who have been pointing out that Trump is not the only politician who has handled important government documents inappropriately. You've got Hillary Clinton, President Biden, Trump's vice president, and now his opponent in the Republican race, Mike Pence, they have all faced allegations of mishandling important government records, but they have not been charged. And I'm wondering what the difference is there. Well, we don't know the difference yet uh, with respect to Biden, because there actually is a special counsel looking into uh, the Biden case as well. For months now, the president has vowed to cooperate fully and completely with this review into his handling of the classified documents found at his former private office here in Washington, and then also at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. And that could entail through that cooperation, an interview with the special counsel. And so along with- But my- assuming he doesn't get charged for the purposes of this conversation, the difference is everyone else seems to be at least a little contrite when the federal government says, hey, uh, there are classified documents. Or in the case of Biden and Pence, actually volunteered to turn these documents over after conducting searches. You know, uh, Trump behaved in a way that's completely at odds with everyone else's behavior. Like he is alleged <laughs> to have fought for months efforts to turn these documents over. Now, he'll say, my case is different because I was president. I didn't have to turn them over. But, you know, that, you know, that I think is going to be a very significant difference in these in these all these uh, incidents. And Mike Pence hinted at it as well. He said, look, you know, when I found out I had these documents, I turned them back. Why did Trump even want to have these documents in the first place? That is the sixty four thousand dollar question. <laughs> the indictment doesn't answer that question. There's no reference to him doing anything as crazy as selling these secrets. It talks about him pulling them out to impress people. And, and, you know, 
without having the full picture, because I don't think prosecutors have said everything they know in that indictment, what I see are two different things at play. An indifference to norms and rules and saying, you know, I'm going to stick some classified documents in a box full of newspaper clippings, you know, and, you know, to heck with the federal government if they want my stuff, tell them to take a hike. And in addition to that indifference, there's a, a desire to retain knowledge and information to pull out when suitable, uh, to prove a point, to win an argument. Uh, so ego and indifference, essentially. Uh, and, I, you know, I think those are probably uh, the two best explanations uh, based on the facts we have at the present moment. If we just take a moment and look at the the wider legal landscape here, you've got special counsel Jack Smith who filed this in Florida. The judge, Eileen Cannon, is a Trump nominee. How does that little constellation there affect the case? It's it's an extremely important, uh, potentially extremely important uh, development. The fact that she was randomly assigned to the case. She was appointed by Trump. She's a member of the Federalist Society. And more importantly, she sided with Trump in, in an earlier, you know, pre-trial uh, procedural battle uh, in a decision she made that was later rebuked, practically ridiculed by a higher court. And there's a lot she can do. She holds tremendous power over this case if she winds up being the judge throughout the, the proceedings. At the very beginning, uh, she can block certain jurors from the jury pool. Once the arguments are underway, she can then prevent the jurors from seeing certain information. She might say those lawyers' notes were uh, obtained in a way that was improper. You can't hear that. So then she decides what the jurors hear. And once the, the case is over and the defense uh, rests, you, you, you know, the, the jurors start to deliberate. If those deliberations don't result in a verdict immediately, she's capable of declaring more quickly than other ju- judges would a mistrial. Whereas other judges could say, you know, just keep keep deliberating, get to a, get to a verdict, please. And then finally, and this is the the mother load, the nuclear weapon <laughs> sitting in her pocket. Uh, it's what's called a, a Rule Twenty Nine motion to dismiss. It's rarely used, but a judge can actually bypass a jury and say, look, the, the evidence presented by the government was not strong enough. I'm declaring him acquitted. They can do this at various points in the trial, and depending on when it happens, if it happens. Um, before the the jury renders its verdict, it's unappealable for reasons of uh, double jeopardy. You can't try someone twice for the same. Oh, that that uh, counts as having been tried one time. Exactly. But if she does it after after the verdict, uh, then, then uh, the, the feds could appeal. So basically, she has three or four tools at her disposal that could really swing the case in Trump's favor. And that's why a lot of people hoping to see Trump convicted are, are a little nervous that she might be presiding over this case. How long do you think all of this is going to take? I mean, the timing here is really interesting because Donald Trump is running to be the Republican nominee in the November 2024 presidential election. So I'm just wondering how these two things are going to run into each other. Will this still be going on? Uh, that's a great question. And and uh, the answer to that question is it depends. Now, I'll start off with a factoid, and I think it's a relevant factoid. The federal government chose to proceed in the Southern District of Florida for a variety of reasons. But one, I think, important motivating factor was that this place is, is known for being really quick in conducting a trial. I was just looking at some federal case management statistics. It takes about nine months to conduct the average trial in uh, Florida from the uh, 
charge to the uh, verdict. Right. That It's doubled that amount of time in Washington, D.C. So it's about 18 months in D.C. If you'd done this in D.C., there's no way it would have been done by Election Day. In Florida, you've got a chance. There is a chance it could happen. Unless Trump decides it's in his interest to slow it down. The feds really want to go quickly on this. They want it done before the primaries. And it could happen before the primaries if it's made a priority on the docket. Uh, primaries are next early next year. But if, if Trump slows it down with procedural motions, he might succeed in kicking it past the next election. So that's why I say it depends. Florida is well equipped to do this quickly if both sides agree to it. If we look at the rest of, of the political landscape here, Donald Trump is running to become Republican nominee for 2024's presidential election. And there are about a dozen people who are running against him to be the Republican nominee. And you might expect that they would use this legal trouble as a center point in their campaign against Trump. But most of them are not doing that. What is the political calculation there? Look, it's a very simple fact that I'm not sure a lot of them really truly appreciate or are happy about. But the fact is Republican voters love Donald Trump and they don't love that, the others that much. <laughs> it's simple as that. I saw one of the saddest things I've ever seen in politics the other day. Mike Pence giving a speech in New Hampshire where he's trying to uh, produce applause lines. First, let me be clear. No one is above the law. And, and his own applause lines are not getting cheered. But then when he talks about the persecution of Donald Trump, people are clapping. And as Americans, it's essential to remember that you are innocent until proven guilty. This is at his own rally. They're cheering for the other guy. So that's why they, they, uh, they kind of suck up the Trump because the path to being the Republican nominee by taking on Donald Trump is not exactly, you know, one without bumps and, and, um, and bruises. I don't know that there's an easy solution for any of these candidates. The simple fact is other, other uh, you know, most Republicans prefer Trump. So at this point, despite all the legal trouble that Trump is facing, it's looking like Trump will have another shot at running for president, if I'm hearing you correctly. Uh, barring a shocking turn of events, even more shocking than him being charged in uh, uh, federally and with state crimes. He's, you know, he's, he faces two sets of charges in New York and at the federal level in Florida. Uh, that hasn't shaken up this race. Uh, maybe a conviction would, but it's, it's unclear what would change anything at this point. And then you get into a, a general election matchup against Joe Biden which is frankly a coin toss at this point. Uh, polls show them pretty much tied. Well, it certainly won't be the last time we're hearing from you on this. This has been fascinating, Alex. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, I'd leave you with one thought. Uh, you know, if this case is not determined by January 20th, 2025, and Donald Trump is president of the United States, we'll probably do an episode about whether or not the president can pardon himself, because I think that's what he's trying to, trying to accomplish here. Very interesting times. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Saroja Coelho. Thanks so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.